before we get started today, let me pray for us. This clip is excellent. Thank you for whoever put it up here. Um, let me pray for us, and we will go ahead and get started. Uh, Lord God, we are grateful to be uh, with the saints this morning. We're grateful to continue talking about union with Christ and the benefits of these things. We pray that we would approach them with the proper amount of humility, but with the reality that you have made these things manifest to us in your scripture so that we would take it seriously and um, that we would have, the again, the humility to plead mystery and be okay with that where we need to do so, but also to not abdicate the responsible task of trying to interpret the word of God and um, understand how you've revealed yourself to us. And so we pray that you would uh, inhabit our time this morning toward that end. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, amen. Okay, so uh, we obviously are continuing on in our series of Union with Christ. And last week, uh, I discussed two models of union with Christ. One we call the bifurcation model. The other model we call pneumatological realism. And both of those are big words that you should probably just forget. But the, pro the important thing is that you remember uh, what is designated by those terms. The bifurcation model of union with Christ is very hesitant to say that there is a, such a thing as a one union with Christ, that union with Christ is a thing. They say, well, really, it's more important to talk about there are different ways in which we might say we are united to Christ. One way just is being declared righteous. It, is, it just is this positional kind of righteousness. There's another sense in which we have a vital relationship with Christ, which is kind of like a nourishing spiritual relationship that allows us to grow. Um, and, then they, and then there is even something that was, they would call the virtual union, which is essentially just the benefits of union with Christ. But there's, there's very little robust sense that there is actually a union with Christ. There's, uh, there's kind of, well, we, we, we participate in Christ like, like uh, parents participate with their children. There's not a union of them, but they're kind of in the same you know, parents nourish children, and we have a nourishing connection to Jesus. That's the vital union for them. Or the being declared righteous, that's just a different way to say united with Christ. The other model says, no, 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 no. Uh, union with Christ is mystical, and it is real, and it is robust. And we can't fully explain it, but neither can, as it turns out, the Apostle Paul, who you remember in Ephesians 5, is talking about a man and his wife, a husband, a husband and his wife, uh, um, and he says, I'm talking, I refer to a mystery here, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. There is a union that happens between a man and a woman, and there is a relationship, a kind of union between Christ and the church, and there's an analogy there, but Paul can't explain it. I certainly can't explain it, and you can't either, and yet it does seem to be that there is something that is robust, something that is Real. It is not something that makes God less God, or is it's not makes it's not something that makes us divine. But there is a, a robust sense in which we are united with Christ. And the second view here, uh, the the pneumatological realism says we are truly united with Christ, and it's the Spirit. That's the pneumatology, right? It is the Spirit that does that. And if you were here last time, I made the case that the the ascended and resurrected Jesus acts as the Spirit or through the Spirit in the believer. And so that union with Christ can be understood as uh, affected by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All right, I made that case last time. I don't have a chance to uh, 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 time to rehearse that 
But that's what we landed on. So we ended up with these three things right here. That despite being mystical, our union with Christ is realistic, not metaphorical or analogical. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit accomplishes union with Christ. The resurrected Christ functions through the Holy Spirit in the believer. And then this is what we're going to camp out on today. Union with Christ is the basis for all the blessings of salvation, including justification, sanctification, and resurrection. You might recall with the folks, the Escondido folks, Michael Horton, J.B. Fesco, R. Scott Clark, people Escondido, California, Westminster, they want to say that they want to say it's the opposite. They want to say that justification leads to union with Christ. That justification is the first uh, domino in the chain, in the logical explanatory chain, so to speak, which is not the traditional Reformed order of salvation. Okay, um, they want to put justification before repentance and faith because they're afraid of consequences if you don't. They're afraid you're going to lapse into kind of like a Catholic error. Um, but uh, this model here that I'm suggesting to you says, no, no, no. Um, the, the justification, which we may get to at the very end of today, and sanctification and the, and the vast majority of the blessings secured uh, by the gospel and by Christ come through union with Christ which means that union with Christ is an incredibly important New Testament doctrine. It has an incredible amount of instrumental value in explaining how the other blessings work, so to speak. It's the foundation for them. And that's going to take up most of our time in this series. But I want to argue first, and I want to demonstrate for you from three passages of Scripture, and so I hope you have your Bible because we're going to look through them, um, I want to try to demonstrate that it is union with Christ, this in Christ, that leads to all these things and not the other way around. Okay? That it is union with Christ that leads to these things and not the other way around. Okay? Um, remember, uh, well, you know what? We don't need to remember that yet. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And if I could get a reader for Romans chapter 6 with a nice loud voice and a little bit of velocity, we would all love to hear... Oh, I just slept my computer. We would all love to hear someone read Romans 6, 1 through 11. Who would like to bless us with such a task? Nobody? Oh, Josh, there you go. Sorry, I was looking down. All right, Josh is going to read with a nice loud voice and a little bit of velocity, Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11, and then we are going to walk through it and discuss how it relates to union with Christ actually being the basis for the benefits of Christ, which is the primary burden here. All right, Josh. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Nine. 
with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I hope um, as uh, Josh read that, you heard how much of the in Christ and with Christ language is embedded in this passage. It's everywhere in here. It's everywhere in here. And so I want to briefly walk through it and just point out some of that language, again, to clarify that it is union with Christ that secures these blessings on down the way and not, not the other direction. The blessing of justification doesn't secure union with Christ. Union with Christ is the basis of justification. So we have this. What shall we say then? All right, because he's just gotten done. He's just got done talking about in, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, Adam and Christ is the last Adam. Uh, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Great. So we, there's a righteousness that... Um, uh, 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 there's a righteousness that's going to reign through us. There's going to be eternal life. It's going to be through Jesus. And then he asks this hypothetical question. What are we to say then? Can we continue to sin that grace may abound? And of course, what he means is, well, if grace, you know, uh, if sin gives an opportunity for God to show his grace uh, and, and uh, that glorifies, he's glorified in showing grace, why would we not sin more so that he could show more grace and get more glory? Okay, it's like, it's like someone who just took one philosophy class and thinks they're smarter than everyone. That's like this question right here. It's like, oh, I, I have an idea. Why don't we do this? If this is the case, we can send it up so God can grace it up. He gets glorified. We live it up. And, and Paul says, you got it wrong. He says, you got it all wrong. But his, his explanation is very interesting. His explanation is very interesting because his explanation is kind of going to have to do with union with Christ. Okay? By no means, Paul's most emphatic negation, the formula in the New Testament, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And now we're going to wonder, well, what does it mean that we died to sin? And he's going to flesh that out. But it's clearly if you died to something, you can't live in it anymore. There's, the two things are antithetical. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And of course, as good Baptists, um, that is why we one of the reasons we believe that submersion best illustrates this theological picture. Okay, submersion in the water, um, being baptized into death, buried with Christ in baptism, I go beneath the waters, uh, symbolizing my death to something um, in Christ Jesus. We are baptized into his 
death. And if and it, right now in the paragraph, it's not entirely clear what that means either. All right, we're getting there, but what is we are baptized into Christ's death? I mean, I didn't die. It just told me that I've died to sin, but I didn't actually die when I was baptized. Okay, um, so what we're we're still waiting to draw the threads together here. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, and then we get a purpose clause in order that. But we have the the with him language, the in Christ with him language, in order that. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, and, and look, this is from our uh, men's thing yesterday. What would you be expecting here? What would you be expecting if you didn't know the last phrase? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too will be raised from the dead. But that's not what it says, is it? That's not what it says. Because he's answering a question about what? Why can't we go on sinning? His conclusion is, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That we might live in a certain way. Okay? So right here, union with Christ, union with Him in a death to sin. So Christ died. He didn't die because He was sinful he died because of our sins, but because of union with Christ, Paul can talk of us dying with Christ and being buried with Him. This incredible union that we have as Paul describes it. And he says that just as Christ was, if we were buried with Him, something is going to follow because we're connected with Him, we're united with Him in some way. If we were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, and then he makes he draws a conclusion, we should live in a certain way. He doesn't just say that there's going to be a future promise. In light of our union with Christ in death to sin, Jesus, as he rose from the dead, calls us to live in a certain way in this life. That is to say, to walk in the newness of life. And so he answers his question which is about, can we, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? No. You're united with Christ and have died to sin, and because Christ has been raised, you must walk in newness of life. You must live a resurrected life, which is, by the way, that's our baptismal liturgy. If you've heard me say that when I baptize people, it comes from right here. Buried with Christ, within, uh, buried with Christ in death to sin and raised to live a resurrected life a new life. Okay? He goes on. For if we have been united with Him, one of the most explicit references to union with Christ in the whole New Testament, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. This is what we were expecting in verse 4, isn't it? Isn't this what we were expecting? Remember in the last verse, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we will too. That's not what it says, but that is what we get in verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, obviously then we're going to be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, union with Christ, particularly being united with Christ in death to sin, is what guarantees that we're also going to be resurrected with Christ on the other side of things. Okay? 
Again, union with Christ, doing a lot of heavy lifting and explaining the blessings of the gospel. We know that our old self was now crucified with him. So now we switch from the buried language and the baptism language to the crucifixion language, which is the punishment language. We were crucified with Christ. Of course, that's going to have certain effects. Our old self was crucified with him. There is a robust sense in which we were crucified with Christ. In order that, for the purpose that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, answering the question posed in verse 1. Should we sin that grace may abound? So this is a second kind of an answer to that question. We're crucified with him so that our body of sin might be brought to nothing, just like Christ's body was brought to nothing on a cross and then thrown into a tomb. Our sin is supposed, he's supposed to set us free from sin so that our sin can become to nothing. Why? Because we are in Christ. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, and, and the, here you're going to go back to how uh, the, the second half of verse 2, or the, I'm sorry, just verse 2. Uh, no, it is the second half of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him on the heels of, for one who has died, verse 7, has been set free from sin. And this is very interesting. If you go down to the bottom of your page, what does it say? What does it say? What is the word that is actually there for set free? Has been justified. Of course, the ESV is trying to help everybody out. ESV always makes sure everyone's theology doesn't go in the wrong place. But that's what it says. So they would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been justified from sin. So it sure seems like union with Christ affects justification. Justification. I'm getting ahead there. We're not going to get, we may get to that at the very end, but it seems like union with Christ is related, centrally related to justification. We've died with Christ. It makes it, 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 we, it makes it very clear that we have been justified, and you can understand it as being set free from sin. I don't know that, I don't know why they chose to translate it that way, but that's not what it literally says, has been justified. Now, if we have died with Christ, okay, here we go again, with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We've heard, already heard this now. Um, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, okay? Death no longer has dominion over Him, because He is raised in a glorified body, the same one that we will be raised in if we are, what? United with him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And so, obviously, you can probably imagine that the, the died to sin, the, the prepositional phrase there, how it's rendered gets debated by people. What does it mean that Christ died to sin? Well, it doesn't mean the same thing as you and I dying to sin, meaning that we were sinners and then something happened. But the idea is that he died to sin in the sense that he took on sin, he was credited as someone who was a sinner, and then he was 
uh, he was he received punishment on that account. He was reckoned a sinner, and then he died to it uh, on account of being reckoned a sinner to set us free from sin. That's something that he did once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So he what again? So the same example uh, repeats itself in Christ. What Christ died to, he doesn't live in either. That's what Paul's saying. Just how he just said, when you died to sin, you can't go live in it. Jesus is the same thing. The death he died, he died to sin, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So he concludes. Therefore, verse eleven, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so, in this one little passage right here, you have an incredible, incredibly robust doctrine of union with Christ that is grounding not only imperatives about how to live, but is even explaining certain doctrines. Union with Christ informing the resurrection of the dead, which is the Christian hope. Union with Christ informing justification. Union with Christ informing holy living. Union with Christ uh, is his explanation of pushing back against questions about license for sin, even in the face of grace, and even in the face of grace abounding. Okay? So that's the first text I wanted to camp out on to try to help you understand how union with Christ in Christ is the foundation for the things that follow. Any questions about Romans 6, 1 through 11? You have a question? Is that clear? Does that make sense? No? Yes? Raise your hand in your heart, somebody? Yeah? Okay. Good. All right. Well, fair enough. So, union with Christ, the basis of these things. Let's look at another passage. 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30. I'm going to start back up. Oh, and I don't have time to start all the way up there, do I? That's okay. So, well, let me just read a couple of these things because it's going to inform one of these passages, uh, one of these words, excuse me. Back up in 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolish not made foolish the wisdom of the world, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks speak, seeks wisdom, excuse me, seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Okay, he continues on down in 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. How many times have you heard wise show up? A couple of times now, right? Four or five, three or four times wise. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So what he's saying is, none of y'all are real big deals. 
How many of you are a big deal? Raise your hand if you're a big deal. No one raise your hand. I'm not a big deal. You're not a big deal. Y'all are great folks, but no one here is a big deal. All right? That's, what, that's exactly what he was saying to the Corinthian church. You weren't a big deal. You weren't noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world, that is you and I, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He says, no, there's not going to be any boast. No one stands before God with any kind of boast like, I got it done. It's not it. And then we read this. And this is a bizarrely explicit claim about being in Christ and these things that follow. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, why is that last part, which is not the part we're going to camp out on, important? What he's saying is, because you are in Christ and he became to you these things, everything is credited to Jesus. So there's no foundation for you to boast. That's his argument. That's how he's making it, right? Christ became to you wisdom. He became to you righteousness. He became to you sanctification. He became to you redemption because you are in him and therefore you have no reason to boast. And so that means, whoo, Jesus became a lot of things. And it sounds like this verse is saying that a lot of those things came from being, you guessed it, in Christ. Okay, so I'm going to do these out of order, these four things. I'm going to do them out of order, and I think you'll see why. First of all, redemption. He became to us redemption. Um, and, and what some of these, and some people want to say here isn't that Christ was redeemed and he came that he became that to us because that would be incoherent. It would people would say, well, if it's talking about Christ being redeemed. Uh, Christ was sinful, you know, he didn't need to be redeemed. Uh, it's saying that Christ did redeeming. And initially that sounds plausible. I mean, certainly Christ did redeem. There isn't anyone who objects to that. Of course Christ redeemed. The question is, is that what this says? It says that he became to us redemption. It, 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 uh, it became, he, he, he became to us redemption. Um, and this is where you might ask the question, you might do a hypothetical omission from our men's group yesterday. You might have had the uh, uh, privilege of being there. You might ask a question like this. It sounds like on that interpretation, what the text should be saying is something like this. Not that he became to us redemption, but that he provided us redemption. Or that he made redemption possible. But the language here is astonishing. It's talking about Christ becoming, becoming something. Christ becoming something. But that's the focus. It's on Christ becoming something. It's not the focus on providing something. Okay? Christ becoming something. That's the scandal of this verse. He has become to us these things. Well, then what on earth does it mean? If it doesn't mean that he granted redemption, and of course, just to be very clear, the reason we find redemption is because we are in Christ who was redeemed. That's what I'm going to suggest. Of course, of course he's the one who's redeemed. But this is giving us something about how this happens. The reason we are redeemed is because Christ was redeemed and we're united with. 
Okay, so there. I love spoiling my conclusions before I actually even uh, talk about it. Um, the challenge of this is solved by looking at the word redemption, lutruo, in the, the lutruo word group. Um, and it certainly has connotations in some cases of deliverance from sin. Um, but especially when you look at the Septuagint uses of it, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you see that the scope is actually not that narrow. When we think of redemption, we think of like redeeming someone from sin. But even, even before I give examples, who can think of redemption in the Old Testament having nothing to do with sin? Who can think of an example? The redemption concept. Ruth. Okay, there's one. Hold on. So we've got Ruth right here. Ruth is redeemed by a kinsman redeemer. Has nothing to do with eradicating sin. Okay. Redeemed out of Egypt. Very good. What are we here? Kinsman redeemer. Okay, fantastic. So um, this is 15 times we use, we see God delivering Egypt, Egypt delivering Egypt. We see uh, God delivering Israel out of Egypt and using this word redeeming, redemption. 14 or 15 other times, we see the use, uh, word used of God delivering individuals from oppression. And then uh, there are other examples. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Here's one in Isaiah 63, 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He redeemed them and he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Then, of course, we remember the oppression and the affliction of Christ highlighted in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened out his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened out his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. So you have Christ himself who is cut off. Remember the promise all over the Old Testament that if you are not faithful and if you commit high-handed sin, you will be what from the people of God? Cut off. You will be cut off. You will not be allowed to, per be, to participate in being blessed to be a blessing. And that is exactly what happens to Jesus. He is Cut off. He is cut off. And what I am saying here is that Christ was redeemed from his affliction even to the point of death by the resurrection. Okay? He was delivered from affliction. He was delivered from uh, 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 oppression. And that redemption here is being used in a very similar way that redemption has been used of Israel being delivered out of Egyptian oppression. There were sinful things happening to them, suffering happening to them, and, and they were redeemed as the Son of God. Yes? So Jesus, as the Son of God, was similarly redeemed. He was redeemed from death. He was redeemed from being counted as a sinner, even though he was not in fact a sinner. 
And he was, it, was, it was a public redemption, which is going to be important when we talk about the justification piece. And as a result, as I would say, so are we. Christ was redeemed from death and, and the grave. And I think that's a far more satisfying reason, uh, reading of he became this for us. This is something that he became. Christ's redemption becomes our redemption. It's a theme we will continue to see, but I think this is the first time that we see it with the word redemption. Okay, Christ's redemption becomes our redemption. What about sanctification? Are these bullet points? Do I have these? Oh, yeah. Look at all these bullet points, y'all. That's awesome. All right. Uh-oh. You're not supposed to see that one. Oh, I messed up the whole thing. <sighs> not everyone's got their gifts, folks. Everyone knows this is not mine. All right. Oh, wrong. Okay. What about sanctification? He became to us sanctification. Credited sanctification? What is that? Now, isn't it true? Didn't you learn in Bible Bible uh, school and maybe Sunday school in some cases that that justification was a moment and then sanctification was a process? Who learned that? Come on, everyone tell me. Okay. All right. Now, it's not that sanctification is not a process. But it's a process that follows something that is a declaration as well. In fact, the vast majority of instances, or the, well, the, there's not as the majority of instances are in the past tense in the New Testament. You were sanctified. What? I was sanctified? Yes. You were sanctified. Hebrews 2.11, for he, he who sanctifies and he who are sanctified all have one source. You read in 10.10, and by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so there is a process of sanctification that follows a definitive sanctification of the believer in light of union with Christ. Now you remember that sanctified translates the Greek word, the same Greek word group as holy. Okay? You might translate, you could translate sanctification as holyified. Okay? Holyified. And what's going to happen is there's going, and holyified, being set apart from, to be distinct from, uh, for, for the purpose of God, to be a set apart for God in a particular way, characterized in a particular way by being set apart for God. And there is a positional, singular moment that that happens in the life of a believer upon repentance and faith, that they are set apart uh, because Christ was set apart holy for God. He lived for God. He lived perfectly for God. He became obedient even to the point of death. His purpose was to glorify His heavenly Father. Nothing like that more clear than just reading the farewell discourse uh, that I was looking at in preparation to preach this, the following sermon in John 14 through 17, Jesus was holy, and he has become holiness to us. So we are credited with holiness, with perfect holiness, even though we are not actually perfectly holy. And then that leads to a life where we are called to progressively become what we already are in Christ, sanctified, holified. Christ has become that to us. The, the grounds of the process of sanctification 
is the reality of declared sanctification, of positional sanctification and holiness in Christ. So in light of union with Christ, we have positional sanctification. I would say we have, uh, we have this positional consecration set-apartness. But then we also have, oh, I don't know why I hit that button. We also have, we also have righteousness. We also have righteousness. We're going to talk about this one a little bit later when we uh, talk about justification. But it, it does seem very clear that Christ was declared righteous in his resurrection. That's what Paul says, okay, that he was justified by the Spirit in his resurrection. Um, in the middle of history, which would have been bizarre because the Jewish concept of justification and being declared righteous was an eschatological concept, meaning an end times concept. But what we're going to... And so Jesus received a, a glorified resurrection body, an end time reality in the middle of history. Okay? He was accused. You, you, you heard me read Isaiah 53 there. All of those things, and then he was justified. His, he was justified by the resurrection. And what we're going to see is that justification in the New Testament does not somehow become not a future, primarily even a future-oriented thing. It is. The whole scandal of Paul's gospel is that justification, just like the kingdom coming already not yet, justification is understood in the already not yet tension. There is now a righteousness, a justification, a way to be righteous that the law and the prophets testified to, Romans 3, but it, now it's a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's something different. You can be counted as righteous just like Abraham was now, even though you're not actually righteous, and in fact, this is merely the backing up of an end-time verdict over, spoken over your life in, into the middle of history. It is, as George Ladd said, the presence of the future. That's what justification is. And Christ, because he was justified, has become to us justification. Okay? We're going to unpack that one a little bit more later. And then finally, the one with which everyone is probably scratching their heads maybe a little bit more about, but that's, this is why I read the context and want to talk about wisdom. What does it mean that Christ became wisdom to us? This is the, actually the place where N.T. Wright steps back and says, none of these things can mean that Christ credits us with these things because being, like, being imputed wisdom doesn't make sense. I think that would be to, be to move too quickly, particularly in this context where the whole problem is the issue of wisdom right here. The issue of wisdom in this part of the chapter, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God, verse 21. The wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. And what is the wisdom of God displayed in? It is displayed in the person of Jesus. A man who comes and dies and it looks foolish. It looks like folly. You, you, you follow someone who, who, who got killed uh, and he, he couldn't even save himself, and he died, and then people say he rose from the dead, and all and all, on and on, and it's something for the people who appear to be foolish in kind of the context here. And so it is Christ. Uh, Christ is the one who is the wisdom of God, and he has become wisdom to us because he is the one 
who lives in perfect fear of the Lord, and he is the one who is the, the antithesis of the God of this age, who brings only a wisdom of the world. Remember in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. So we're getting a contrast here. As Lord, with ourselves as your servant, for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ has become for us wisdom from God. And so even the person, to put it crudely, the Christian with the lowest IQ is wise. How? Because they have wisdom in Christ. That's why. That's how this passage makes sense. Okay? There is a deeper kind of wisdom that because we are united to Christ, we in fact have. That we are, in, we, we are, we are credited with a certain kind, and certainly we grow in wisdom, but we are counted as having a certain kind of wisdom. We are counting as having a kind of wisdom that perfectly fears the Lord that perfectly obeys the Lord and perfectly knows how to live before Him, even as we progressively learn how to do that and learn how to skillfully live in the fear of the Lord, which is what wisdom is, skillful living in the fear of the Lord. Oh, I didn't get to the very last passage. Um, you know what? That's okay. It's the shortest one. We will pick back up there next time, and then we are going to start into all of the benefits of union with Christ. So up until this point, I've tried to, I've tried to walk through the precursors to these things, including... Union with Christ being the basis for everything that comes after it. I've tried to do that with two texts this morning. We'll go to one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which most of you are familiar with anyways. And then we will jump into justification and look at passages for justification. And let me just say, this actually became very clear to me through a couple of conversations that I've had recently. It's a really good thing to know how to argue for justification by faith from the scripture and argue that justification is a positional thing and not an actual righteousness that is infused into us, like our Catholic uh, friends would say. And I would say the vast majority of people, if they were tasked with doing it, would struggle to do so. And so what I want to do when we look at justification, it's going to give, when we look at union with Christ as it relates to justification, it will give me an excuse to give us a quick um, rehearsal of what is justification? How does justification make sense in the already not yet tension? What are the chair texts that support justification by faith? And then why are we to understand the justification that comes by faith as something that we're credited with as opposed to a righteousness that we are actually infused with in moral change? That's the Catholic view. Okay? And then how things end up down the way is dependent on how you do, how well you perform with what righteousness you get infused with. That's Catholic view. We'll come back, discuss those things, um, in particular in light of union with Christ. So thank you so much uh, for the time. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful. We're thankful to be united with Christ. We're thankful for this mystical union that unites us together as a body, even when we can't fully understand it. Um, 
We pray, Lord, that as we just consider this amazing doctrine that you would help it seep into our souls and it not just be something that we're trying to figure out and that perhaps our paradigm for reading the New Testament especially uh, would be altered as we see how uh, how foundational union with Christ is to what you have chosen to do through your Son in bringing the kingdom. Bless us in our next hour of worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.